Hi, this is Steve Robinson, author of Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, a story about the Chick-fil-A brand and my 35-year experience there. And I'm excited about being part of my quest for the best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Steve Robinson. Steve Robinson was hired by the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, as the company's first director of marketing. And he served as the executive vice president and chief marketing officer of Chick-fil-A from 1981 to 2015. He was responsible for overseeing marketing, advertising, brand development, menu development, and hospitality strategy. Prior to joining the company, Steve was the director of marketing for Six Flags Over Georgia theme park in Atlanta. Prior to that, he was a communications manager at Texas Instruments. He earned his marketing degree from Auburn University and his master's in advertising from the Mendel School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Steve and his wife, Diane, have two grandchildren and four, have two children and four grandchildren. Steve lives in Atlanta and is here to talk about his book, Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, How Faith, Cows, and Chick-fil-A chicken built an iconic brand. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Let's start with this pivotal phrase in your career. It's a response taught to each of Chick-fil-A's 50,000 team members across more than 2,600 stores as to what to say to someone in response to them appreciating you for some aspect of their interaction. People at other fast food restaurants can say, uh-huh, okay, or even you're welcome. When you say thanks for an extra napkin or service or service with a smile at Chick-fil-A, the person behind the counter looks you in the eye and says, my pleasure. In your words, why does that phrase make a difference? That phrase caught the attention of Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, probably in the early 2000s, and he had experienced it at a Ritz-Carlton. And I'll use his way of describing it. He said, I was impressed with the eye contact. There was a natural smile. Everybody on the Ritz-Carlton staff was using it. He said, I, it was obvious. It created an attitude that was contagious. He actually encouraged operators to adopt that response to thank you three years in a row in, in our national meeting. Finally, some of us figured out he was serious about it. And we decided well, there's a bigger idea there, that, there than just my pleasure. There's a fundamental hospitality idea. We were looking for ways to continue to make Chick-fil-A more valuable, more unique, more relevant to differentiate ourselves from everybody else in the fast food space. That was the seed of an idea to develop what we called second mile service, which became an, an entire set of hospitality behaviors. We developed training around it. We developed all the support operators would need to hire and select great people that kind of had the gift of hospitality. We tested it. We had to convince operators that it wouldn't cost them money, but they would actually help make them money, which it proved to do. But it took seven years to take that little phrase and do everything I just described, eventually roll it out. And we didn't roll it out until almost 2010. It transformed the Chick-fil-A brand. There's no question about it. People and people used to rate Chick-fil-A's food the top five or six things they liked about Chick-fil-A. Now, when you look at the, the Chick-fil-A research, the food's in the, the bottom of the top 10. It's all these people, hospitality experiences that they remember now and play back. 
it adds value to their experience. It shows respect, dignity, and there's not a lot of that in the retail space. There's a lot of people saying, no problem. I hope not. I'm spending money with you. So anyway, I got, I get to give all the credit for the seat of that came from Truett Cathy. But what you think about institutionalizing it for 50,000 team members, which what we had back then, it was a big challenge. What strikes me as so interesting is that the story comes with him learning it from the Ritz-Carlton, which is as different from retail chicken as you can get. There's a phrase called NIMBY, not in my backyard, which would typically prevent people embracing an idea like that. They would think it's just something that's a fad. He's going to go to another hotel or have another experience next month. But this is something that really penetrated the culture of the organization. What did it take to really get through to people that, like you said before, after three years, you figured he was serious? i tell you what it took. In that three-year gap, we started visiting other brands that had this hospitality edge, this service edge. We spent time in Apple stores. We went to Nordstrom's. We went to Southwest Airlines headquarters. We went to the headquarters of Zappos. We went to visit Danny Meyer restaurants in New York City that are high-end white tablecloth restaurants. To your point, we studied other brands totally out of our space on purpose, and we not only visited their, their customer-facing outlets, but we went to every one of their headquarters and spent time with management and tried to get a handle on how do you institutionalize uh, service and hospitality not just different, but also consistent. That's the real challenge. So that's why when you visit a Southwest Airlines or Nordstrom, you're talking to somebody that's trying to activate their hospitality model through thousands of their employees. So we learned a lot before we ever said, okay, we're going to take this on. But intentionally, we studied people outside our space. And I think that's really an important discipline. What was the biggest challenge for you to have it permeate the actual day-to-day -day behavior of the operators? Because I'm sure that once you got it, it wasn't a matter of saying, yes, guys, this is something we really want you to do. The biggest challenge was they didn't think they'd make money doing it. They thought it was just going to slow down service. Okay, I don't have time to be having these soft moments with a customer. They thought it would slow down service. They thought, therefore, it would add labor hours and that it would actually cost them money. So as part of that rollout process of seven years, we spent almost two years, Bill, in over 100 restaurants refining this hospitality model, measurement, training. But we also use research and financial analytic to determine, okay, at the end of the day, is the operator going to make more money or not? And the answer was yes. These test stores in a period of two years uh, outperformed the rest of the chain on their same store sales growth double. What were some of the metrics? It was basically three things. They were coming more often. They were telling other people about their experience. They were also telling us through research how much it meant to their experience. They're so coming more often, paying full price, inviting others, and telling us what it meant to them, which meant it, it enriched the brand. We measured all that. By the way, all those three things, those four things are still being measured in the restaurants every quarter. And so they're not just measuring food and traditional operational performance. They're me measuring and monitoring service hospitality performance. And the metrics around profitability ultimately is what put us over the edge because if we ever proved the operators, you're going to make more money doing this. By the way, when we rolled it out, chain-wide same-store sales almost doubled within a year. And we didn't spend another dollar on marketing. So that was held constant. This was the variable. Yeah, it was probably the most powerful thing we ever did for the brand. And it wasn't a traditional marketing tool. Then once people bought into it and the rest beyond the test group, they also saw the same financial benefit. Oh, yeah. We have this experience where we roll out new products and it happened with service too. Typically, whatever we would see in a test process, a test sale of stores, if it was enough to say we need to roll it out, 
we would typically see the result substantially higher when we went chain-wide because you get the synergy of messaging, training, customers talking about their experiences, and it adds to the, the momentum of the brand. So yeah, re results were actually superior rollout than the test. I want to talk with you about probably the, the most lengthy interview process I've ever read about. When you were first hired by Chick-fil-A, you went through an interview process that started in the summer and didn't conclude until the week of their Christmas party before they even made an offer. In fact, looking back on that process, as you met with the founder as direct reports numerous times while still working full time at Six Flags, what was important about the pace for Truett, Kathy, from your perspective? The, the background on that, Bill, was the paradigm background was when I went to work for Six Flags, they interviewed me in one very long day. And by the end of the day, they offered me a job. So when they reached out to me in August of 1980 and said, we don't have a marketing department. Would you have an interest in talking to us? I told them yes, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, even if this doesn't work out, this is worth two or three or four days of my time. I look up in the middle of December, almost five months, and I'm sitting in Truett Kathy's office again, and I've already had multiple meetings with virtually everybody at the home office. I looked at Truett and I said, Truett, I really think I can help you, but what are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? Am I the guy? Because I have a job I do and I'm doing this stealth. It's getting a little challenging. He gave me a long pause and put down his Chick-fil-A sandwich because we were eating. And he said, I have absolutely no idea, but all I know is whatever it is, I don't want to do it. Meaning the marketing. I said, what are you looking for in a marketing candidate? He said, I don't know, but I don't want to do it. Then he said, but I do know this, if we invite you here, it's because we know we can have fun and we can trust you to be a leader that we can basically empower. Then he said, the most important decisions we make here is who we invite to join the organization. It was a paradigm buster for me. Total surprise. So let's break that down. And you were a young father, you had a family, mortgage, and you're looking to go into this company and you're jeopardizing your other job the more time that you spend away from it. You just asked the person who you think you've won the favor of, and he says, I have no idea yeah. That must have been quite of a setback for you. Then he says it's most one of the most important decisions we make, which is who we bring into the company. Because even though you were brought as a director of marketing, you were part of the executive team. You direct, report directly to Truett. That's correct. Even though the answer was very unique. In fact, he did go on to say, I'm trusting Jimmy and others. Jimmy Collins, who was the COO, he says, I'm trusting Jimmy and others to figure out if you can do the job. I'm more concerned about who you are. Again, I'm just getting to know this guy. But what I learned, Bill, in a matter of a few short years is that that last interview was a microcosm of what makes Chick-fil-A very unique. Everything Truett said to me was real. The positive part of saying, I have absolutely no idea what it is you're going to do was the other part of the statement. I just don't want to do it. That's exactly the way he treated me was if he trusted you, you were empowered, truly empowered. I can tell you, and, and as I share my book, I made some mistakes, a couple of doozies. But I never had Truett call me his office one time, not once, to ask me, why did you do that? Or you should have talked to me before you did that. Not one time did he ever do anything to undermine my confidence that he had confidence in me. So what does that do? 35 years. It freed me up to be a risk taker, to drive innovation, to constantly be trying to probe what's going to continue to grow this business and this brand long term. What's going to make it more valuable to customers? He wasn't focused on short-term results. 
He was more interested in his reputation and long-term results. So I benefited from a guy who didn't want to do it himself. Which is really rare in many CEOs and founders because they think they can do anything. And it's so important to realize where the limits are of where you're good. That's right. He was incredibly empowering. So was Jimmy Collins. So as a result, I can never bring an idea to him that I thought was going to be risky that I couldn't answer questions about the facts. What are the facts on this idea? Research facts, financial facts, whatever. But his common question, Bill, was real simple. Do you think this helped make the business? Yes or no? As long as it was clear that my team and I had done our homework, his answer was always yes. Some of those answers were yes to big milestone moments in the company. What's one that you think of? Because you look back and certainly there were big ones, which are different from the day-to-day -day ones. What's one of the big ones? There was a bunch in the whole food area because uh, shortly after I got there, we reorganized and menu development was moved under me. So we'd have the voice of the customer and many under my leadership, we added waffle fries. We added grilled chicken sandwich. We added salads. We added wraps. We added breakfast. We added milkshakes. We added frosted lemonade. We added catering trays, seven menu items. It was a fried chicken sandwich, shoestring fries, Coca-Cola, lemonade, lemon pie. What were the other two? Coleslaw, carrot and raisin salad. That's it. All right, ice cream. That was it. So the one big bucket was all the menu stuff. He and Jimmy didn't want to do waffle potato fries. They didn't want to do char grill. Jimmy called it scorched chicken. They didn't want to do milkshake. How did all that stuff happen? Well, it happened because with that, with menu development reporting the market, we focused on the customer. We did a lot of research. We did a lot of in-store testing. We partnered with operators and operations to work out the kinks in the system. We even put engineering under marketing to work on new equipment and innovations to equipment. So over time, he became very confident in our innovation process. So that wouldn't be one bigger. Another big bucket was like the cow campaign would be an example. One of the most unusual and memorable aspects of Chick-fil-A is that it has a cow as a spokes animal. Sometimes a pair of cows sometimes a pair of controversial bovines who have trouble spelling, but who get out the message, eat more chicken. It's hilarious. It's memorable. Most importantly, it signified the beginning of a public impression of your brand. In Dan Cathy's words, to get people talking about your advertising. Who would have thought that cows would be used to sell chicken? Share the story of when your first encounter with this concept, developed by Dave Ring of the Richards Group, and when those six billboard pieces were placed face down on your desk by your colleague, Greg Ingram. That's correct. You did read my book. Good for you, Bill. So it would have been late 1995. We'd hired the Richards group out of Dallas and we hired him for creative. It, it, we weren't going to outspend anybody. We had minimal budgets. We had to have creative that break through the clutter. And these guys had a history of great creative. Fruit of the Loom guys, Tom Bodet with Motel 6, Home Depot, Ram Trucks, breakthrough creative stuff. They started with a single focus around 3D billboards, because the entire industry was using billboards to basically show product price and where to turn. He said, if you can use billboards, first of all, you can use them year round. You can't afford TV year round or radio year round. It's absolutely right. We knew that. He says, but if you use billboards for brand, for starters, you're, you're going to be a paradigm buster because that's not how the industry uses them. So we started working on that with them and about nine months into their creative development of different concepts, I share some in the book, they ship out six new billboard ideas to our office and Greg Ingram, who was working with with them, lays them face down on my desk. I come back from a meeting, I flip them over and I get to the two cows who painted eat more chicken. I, I literally exploded laughing. Greg heard me down the hall. He came to my door and said, I bet I know which one you liked. And I said, yeah, these cows are unbelievable. 
I shot at the beef guys, fun. The last thing you'd ever expect from a, a fast food chicken sandwich joint on the spot. I said, let's run it. The Olympics was coming in six months to Atlanta, 1996. We put that board up in Atlanta, one location, instant chatter, radio chatter, newspaper chatter, customers loved it. And our regular advertising tracking study, it, it actually showed up. Nothing else we'd ever done even showed up. You'd ask people, what is Chick-fil-A advertising? What is it? What do they do? We'd get cows or eat more chicken. So we knew immediately, we had a big idea and we went back to the agency and said, look, we're going to put this in our top 20 markets. We need to figure out how to produce these fiberglass cows. We did. We put it up in the 20 largest markets. We had one board per city, same thing. Great results, chatter, couple of cows stolen off a billboard in Chattanooga. We had a big PR publicity stunt around that. We didn't steal them. Three kids stole them. Let's talk and about that a little bit more. The thing that we really want to emphasize is that these were 3D billboards. They actually had, as you said, fiberglass cows. It wasn't like these digital billboards today. Rather than grumbling about the loss, you embraced it and turned it into an ongoing PR event. What were some of the inside conversations that led to that response? Here we are with these fiberglass cows are expensive. And so your natural reaction is you want to find somebody and throw them in jail. So when you say expensive, a couple hundred, or a couple thousand dollars, three or 4,000 for a pair. Our publicity director, Don Perry said, I got an idea. Why don't we just put out a press release, not only in Chattanooga where it happened, but in the whole chain. If anybody can tell us where these two cows are and they're willing to turn them back in, we won't prosecute. We'll actually give them Chick-fil-A food for a year. These three kids turned the cows into a radio station wearing bags over their head. We still don't know who they are, but we got publicity all through this whole stream of the story unfolding, including CNN. So that was part of the fodder that we said, you know what, we need to go to the agencies and ask them to work on this as an idea for an entire campaign not just one. We gave them three months to do just that. The rest is history. I got to work on with them on that campaign for 22 years. Their charge was really simple. Keep it fresh, keep it fun, keep it relevant to our brand strategy statement. A big part of that, which was to be fun, they consistently delivered great creative. And of course, as a campaign, it went through everything we did. All media platforms, in-store, eventually digital, et cetera, et cetera. It put us on the map. And the, really, the first time it ever went national was when we became the sponsor of the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. And suddenly it's on ESPN. And that was in 19. 97. That's when the campaign really took off. Yeah. What's also striking is this really was a cultural turning point. You struck oil and you were able to quote unquote milk it for years. It yeah. wasn't something yeah, that no you just any, right. had fun with, but you really played it out. Yeah. I think too many brands who stumble and most brands, when they have a great iconic campaign, they do stumble into it. Um, they get lucky. And we got lucky with that one, just like the Pillsbury Doughboy or the Aflac Duck or any of the other great icons out there. If you got a creative icon, the odds of coming up with another one are pretty, pretty low. We couldn't afford to be experimenting with multiple ideas. We had one that worked and we were going to work it. What a lot of companies do in my observation is that they themselves get tired of it way before the public thinks that they're tired of it and they make decisions to abandon it. Did you have those kinds of conversations where people said they don't want it anymore? And then you ran a test and said, are you kidding? We didn't have that conversation very much because the agency was doing such a great job keeping the creative fresh and the research was very clear that it was continuing to build in popularity, memorability. People were looking forward to the creative. It became also kind of cultish with people, you know, wanting t-shirts and other stuffed plush toys of little cows. And we were selling millions of cow calendars. So when you have that level of engagement where people are not just loving your advertising, but in effect, 
buying it and putting it on their wall. You don't wander away from that. Now, I will say, I think the biggest reason most companies walk away from great campaigns is because they have too much leadership turnover. Uh, they have CEO changes, they have CMO changes, and they all think they got to put their own fingerprint on it and they walk away. But there's a history of a lot of these companies coming back to the great idea. Tony the Tiger was abandoned for a while. Pillsbury Doughboy was abandoned for a while. The Fruit of the Loom guys were abandoned for a while. And all those brands came back to that iconic campaign. The Chick-fil-A cows are now a long-standing cultural icon, like the Geico Gecko, the Energizer Bunny, Tony the Tiger, the Planter's Peanut, all the rest. What's the takeaway about branding that you got right? Well, I think we got it right when we wrote our brand strategy that was given to the richest group. We said, we want to be known as the premium fast food brand that truly cares for their guests, but also has fun. That was the strategy. It was the fun part that was kind of missing from the daily Chick-fil-A experience. Now, it was fun in the stores. Team members were having fun. Customers who would eat in the dining room noticed that people were having fun. But the brand did not have any fun halo to it in the market. So to answer your question, we got it right when we wrote the strategy and Richards nailed it. Stan Richards really picked up on the issue of fun. He had a saying that I've never forgot. If people love your advertising, they'll love your brand. He was a big believer in one of the greatest leverages for creating advertising that people love is make them smile, have fun. And they did, they delivered. What's a mistake that you avoided that we who are looking for a breakthrough idea can learn from? I think the biggest thing that we learn is don't do stuff that it makes you look like everybody else in your industry. Go out of your way. We used to call it the 180 look. If everybody else is doing something, then let's go 180. And we don't want to do anything that looks like what everybody else is doing. Whether it's what we serve, campaigns, how we engage with customers at events. We do not want to look like everybody else in the category. Hospitality. Those are all in the brand of Chick-fil-A. Those are all milestone events, but they're all 180 events. They're all completely renegade to the norm of the fast food business. I think people have to be willing to work. That requires a lot of work. It's a lot easier to just put your own spin on what everybody else is doing. Another one is we walked away from couponing. We never, we aren't going to coupon anymore. We made that decision in the mid eighties. You're not going to find any Chick-fil-A coupons out there. If you find anything, it's just going to be a digital card for a free sandwich, but it's not going to be an offer. It's not going to be a deal or a price discount. You'll never find an Apple discount on products. No, absolutely not. Or BMW. That's exactly right. So I think the discipline, and this is unpacked some in the book called Blue Ocean Strategy, by the way. I think the discipline of intentionally being a renegade thinker and say, okay, if they're doing this, then what would it look like if we did this? I don't think and you cultivate renegade thinking as much as you hire people who have that proclivity. You do, but you can create a culture like Truett did where the people feel the freedom to do it. Truett didn't think we should do anything but shoestring fries, waffle fries. What are you talking about? Char-grilled chicken. That's going to hurt the sales of the regular chicken sandwich. But he listened to this whole idea of being renegade and giving something that was a better value, better experience, and add another layer to the Chick-fil-A brand. Then when you do the research and the testing and boom, you see this great response and great sales, he wasn't going to push back on it. But the point, even, the point is, even when he thought we shouldn't leave shoestrings or create a char grill product, he let us do the work. I think that's leaders need to give people rope 
to be innovative, make mistakes. But again, you got to have a long-term view. And we were motivated to have a brand that was unique and different and would have a reputation that we would hope that nobody, in fact, could replicate. So speaking of risk-taking, early in your tenure, Steve, you listened to what operators were saying about wanting more control about their marketing and advertising. At that point, there was a three and a quarter percent gross income fee that they paid to headquarters for advertising spend. And it represented millions of dollars that could be collectively leveraged to develop great advertising concepts and media buys. What did empowering store operators to make their own marketing decisions free you up to do in corporate? Bill, the key point was at the time, these are operators and the stores are all in malls. The more time I spent visiting stores, therefore visiting malls, I realized we're not properly utilizing the mall. The mall in itself was a medium and we weren't properly utilizing it. We weren't leveraging their storefronts with messaging and product sampling and stuff like that. But operators were pushing back on spending money incrementally in their stores and in their malls because we're taking this three and a quarter cruel. So my team and I finally decided we're pushing a wet noodle up the hill here because they're just not gonna invest another two or 3% out of their P&L when we're taking three and a quarter. So again, Jimmy and Truett embraced a recommendation. Let's drop that accrual. Let us focus on equipping operators with ideas, tools, creative resources to market the restaurants in their stores, in their malls, and the, the community immediately around their malls and empower them to be the primary marketing agents of the business. Now, that was not a short journey. It took four or five years to really gear that up. It was a major shift because up to then, they had been doing what all the other fast food brands did. That is collected accrual and control everything for marketing out of the home office. So what are, what are you think you did to help prepare them for that seismic shift? Oh yeah, their question was, then what are you gonna do to help me build my sales? Okay, that's what was their question. So we had to have proven promotional ideas that we knew would work in malls. I would work with the ideas that we knew they could take into their immediate community and build partnerships and create sales events. So we had to resource them. Of course, then that eventually led to the evolution of store marketing directors where they had to hire a full-time employee to execute local store marketing initially in their store and in their mall. And then of course, when we went out on the street in their communities, but the strategy is not changed. Chick-fil-A is still a local store marketed brand first. There's no regional or national advertising that carries the brand. It, it supplements what the operators are doing. The primary role in marketing at Chick-fil-A still is to resource the operator and those store marketing directors to go out and build locally. One of the philosophies I read about that I found very interesting was to teach them to not just be another storefront in the food court, but to actually become the mayor of the mall. Can you explain what that That's meant going out beyond their store. First of all, meant making the storefront entertaining. Yeah, you're paying money to have a, a store lease and an operating business, but you still have a certain amount of space out at that lease line where you can create activity to entertain people. So why not sample chicken, sample lemonade, sample waffle fries, a give, give a little free ice cream cups to kids, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, entertain in the mall. Secondly, start building relationships with other tenants where you do cross promotions with real simple. You're running a flower shop, Bill. I'll help promote your flower shop if you'll help promote my Chick-fil-A restaurant. But then having the resources for the operator to create that thing, that interactive promotion, that it looks right, has the right messaging. So we developed 
dozens and dozens of partnership kits in effect for the traditional type of tenants you would find in a mall. Again, that goes to the fact that many of the operators didn't have this skill set in order to do this as you're making that transition. No, but almost all of them were very relational and they had no issue with getting to know their other mall tenants and working with them. The third key thing was to get involved in the, if you will, the governance or the politics of the mall. Get on the appropriate tenant boards, stay involved with the manager of the mall to help coach and counsel him on the realities of running a business in his building and don't be a absentee owner. Be highly engaged in what's going on in that mall, including the governance and the politics of it. So that's all part of being the mayor of the mall. That also reflects the restriction and the principle of having one owner own one store, not say a McDonald's owner or someone else who may have three or five different stores and their attention gets diluted. That's right. They're highly motivated to build their sales because that is their single source of income. That's right. That goes back to True Cathy's experience when he expanded his one diner and found it was a disaster and said, yeah, we're just going to stay with this because the customers didn't like it. He didn't like it. And he, he used that as a principle for designing this relationship. The second phase of that bill was then he opened two Chick-fil-A restaurants, one in Atlanta, one in Savannah. He had managers running them. And they were calling him all the time with questions and problems. And he didn't like that. He literally told Jimmy Collins, who at the time was a restaurant design consultant, who was working on two more locations, Jimmy, I don't want to do any more store. That's what prompted the two of them working together to design the independent operator agreement that we've been talking about, where Chick-fil-A finds location, they build the restaurant, they equip the restaurant. They then sublease that restaurant to you as an independent contractor. You pay a percentage off the top for the brand and the services of the brand. After all your expenses, you share the bottom line 55th Chick-fil-A Inc. And your half is your income. Totally changed the business because suddenly all those people aren't calling through it with the daily issues of the business. They're highly motivated to solve problems on the spot, solve them quick. They're highly motivated to take care of every customer, build sales, and attract and keep good team members. The synergy of that deal, the net of it is it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed since 1967 when he created it. It all spins out of that principle that was founded with his experience with the Dwarf Court Grill. That's correct. Steve, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? You go for it. I'm ready. Steve, when you were a teenager, what were the posters on your bedroom wall when you were in high school? Baseball players. That's easy. Baseball players, Pat Sullivan when he won the Heisman. Yeah, I was much, go back to your first one, much of the scrim. What's the most effective way you find to get the word out about your mission now as a speaker who goes out to privately held groups and is able to help educate them and share these insights now that you work as a, a speaker and brand consultant? Obviously, writing the book was a big step. It is still selling well. I've been almost humbled by how well it's done and, and people enjoy it. The book is still out there planting seeds for me. I love to do speeches. I think the most impactful way for me to tell the Chick-fil-A story and what it meant to me and for people to potentially learn from it is to do it in person uh, and tell, tell the stories in more detail that literally changed my life. I would say, Bill, number one thing that's helped is just the book, the Covert Cows book. It, it's still out there and it's still helping me. You bet. So what's an example in your life now that you're a former executive of how you've used your personal influence versus your positional power to be effective in your work? I feel like God has given me a story through my Chick-fil-A experience. The greatest platform I have is any opportunity just to share that story. Whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, in a group, whatever, social media, it's a pretty unbelievable story. Do you still get access to Peach Bowl corporate suites since Chick-fil-A committed another <laughs> million for 
for a 10 year agreement or will you hear the month from home? I do. You believe it or not, I don't go very often, but yes, I do. They are nice enough to invite me every year. See, what's the most important habit, belief, or routine that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I have really enjoyed being able to read more. So what did you cut out that allows you more time for reading? What I cut out was going to the office every day. That's the big thing I cut out. That'll do it every time. I don't have the commute to go with it. Yeah. One more question for you about some of the lessons you learned. When you took the position, you didn't have the experience or the connections or the relationships. What would you say one or two things that you learned that you just knew was a valuable lesson you were learning in your role at Chick-fil-A? I would say that most people in business do not listen to the customer enough. They listen to everybody around them. They listen to the folks that are in the field operationally. What are all the operational issues? What are the logistics issues? All very real. But if you really want to grow a business and grow a brand, you got to make your number one constituent the customer, not leadership, not owners, not stakeholders, the customers. And the kind of stuff I've already talked about, we would have never rolled out those innovations if they had not been literally embedded in and developed through extensive voice of the customer research. Steve Robinson, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on my quest for the best. We talked about the importance of making sure you're testing every step along the way, that with brand development, consistency is the real challenge, making sure that customers come back when you have that consistency more often that they're telling other people and that they're having a better experience in the store. We talked about the synergy effect of being able to make sure that not just one small group of stores are doing it, but when all the stores in the area are doing the same thing on the same message, it creates a compounding effect that benefits everyone. We talked about being able to work with the Richards Group and have the chicken campaign occur right before the Olympics and being able to capitalize it, all those creative ways from the fiberglass cows to a PR campaign and just knowing that it's connecting with people in a way that gets people talking about the advertising also conveys your cultural element of being able to do it with a little bit of humor, a little bit of, of style and a smile. We also made sure that we talked about having the store operators, whether they're in malls or freestanding stores, become the mayor of their mall or the mayor of their town unofficially by getting involved and looking to help other businesses and get involved in order to make others thrive to create a larger pie. So for these reasons and so many more, Steve, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Before we say goodbye for now, where could people find out more about you and be able to hire you for speaking online? I have a website. Thank you. It's robinsonconsulting.com and they'll find my speaker bureau on that site. They're welcome to give it a look. Steve, we're going to link to your website. We're going to link to places where your social media is, as well as places to buy your book and to, to the Leading Authorities website, because we want to make it so easy for people listening to this interview to connect with you and continue to learn. So Steve Robinson, author of Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, I want to thank you once again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It was a treat. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. 
We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.